Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 1st, 2017. I can't believe it's December already. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a bunch of movie news, including a Harley Quinn movie, Disney suing Redbox, Amazon might stop making their pilots public, Wonder Woman 2 will, will have another great love story, uh, and Ryan Johnson talks about the differences and similarities between Star Wars Last Jedi and Empire Strikes Back, and a director has been found for the Masters of the Universe movie, and in the mailbag we'll be taking a look at our favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies of all time. I'm Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film Writer, Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. Uh, it, it is Friday. I think we're all ready for the weekend. Uh, just a couple hours left of work. So let's just get to the news so we can get there. Um, first up, uh, Margot Robbie has revealed that she's working on another Harley Quinn movie. Uh, no, not that one. HT, what do we know? Uh, so we are going to be seeing a lot of Harley Quinn uh, in the future thanks to Suicide Squad 2, the announced Gotham City Sirens, and the uh, Joker and Harley spinoff that are all in the works. 
but Margot Robbie says that there might be a new one uh, that she is currently working on. And this is something that she teased in an interview with uh, MTV. Uh, the, the host of the interview, uh, Josh Horowitz, asked her uh, if how the Harley Quinn project is going along. And uh, she said she's been working on it for two years now and that it's a separate spinoff of Harley. And he asked whether he was she was speaking of Gotham City Sirens or the Harley and Joker spinoff. And she said, it's a totally separate one. So we are going to be assuming from that uh, very sort of vague, coy statement that it is a Harley Quinn solo film. Uh, she said a separate spinoff. So that's safe to assume that she, to make the jump that she is talking about a Harley uh, solo movie, which kind of makes sense because Harley Quinn was the sort of breakout character from David Ayer's Suicide Squad film, uh, which was itself a very uh, messy and atonal film, but Harley Quinn was a huge standout, um, and she's become kind of ubiquitous with the DC comics marketing. We see her on every to- Hot Topic t-shirt, so <laughs> it would make sense that Warner Brothers would want to sort of tap into that uh, success with the Harley Quinn character, and especially Margot Robbie's sort of rising star. So that is something that we'll, we might be seeing soon. Um, we don't know any other details on it. Um, but I will say this also might be a classic case of misstatements because um, Mar- Margot Robbie is reportedly has been uh, named as executive producer for Gotham City Sirens. And I wonder if this is a case of her talking about that film and not a Harley solo film. But I don't know. I think they should cancel this Gotham City Sirens. They should cancel Suicide Squad 2 and just make the Harley solo film. That's what I think people would be going for anyways. I would watch that. Moving on, uh, Disney is going to be or is suing Redbox over the sale of digital download codes. Ben, you wrote about this for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so um, in October, Redbox, uh, which, as you guys probably all know, is like this kiosk service. It's a rental service where you can rent movies from kiosks out in front of grocery stores or gas stations or whatever. Um, Redbox has has launched like a sort of a separate service where they which, offer. Which, by the way, they are like now the number one rental of physical media out there. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, I think I saw that they're. Yeah, they're like adding kiosks, which like, you know, for the past few years, it seems like all of those services have been shrinking. But Redbox seems to be growing. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So anyway, they're they're uh, I guess back in October, they launched this sort of separate service where basically you can um, purchase the digital download codes from Disney movies in a Redbox kiosk. So. You go to the kiosk, you get a printed out code, and then you just take it home and, you know, plug it into your computer or whatever you, your your uh, device of choice, and you essentially own whatever movie they just sold you the code for. Uh, the problem with that is that in Disney's uh, terms and conditions of all of their, you know, products that they sell, it says that you can't resale you know like this product is not for resale or transfer whatever their their specific language is so redbox doesn't seem it doesn't seem like they have much of a case here i'm not i'd be really interested to read their full response to this i don't think they've given out um you know i don't think they've like effectively made their case for this yet and it's possible that disney and redbox are going to come to some sort of agreement behind the scenes before this actually goes in front of a, a court but um it seems pretty blatant to me that that Redbox is just selling these codes when they don't really have the right to do that because well, part of Disney's copyright says 
you can't resell this. Hmm. That's interesting because there's a lot of websites out there where you can buy, uh, including eBay, uh, but you can buy digital download codes. Uh, not to say that I've been doing that because apparently it, it sounds like it might be illegal. Uh, <laughs> well, but... and, you know, I, th- I feel like there's a difference between something on eBay and then, you know, like a, a, uh, a, a, I guess like a major company like Redbox, like actively promoting and marketing this new service where we're doing this thing, which seems to go against what Disney considers to be the law. So um, it, it, they're basically uh, asking for it and Disney is calling their bluff. So now it's going <laughs> to it's going to be interesting to see what they do here, because I, I can't unless they have some sort of uh, loophole that I haven't been able to figure out. It seems pretty weird that they would think that this is OK. Yeah, um, it's interesting, though, because a lot of my friends now uh <laughs> Uh, have jumped on the bandwagon of buying these like digital codes because it's you know so much cheaper. You can oftentimes uh, find a digital code for a movie online for like a dollar more or two dollars more than what it costs to rent the movie. And of mm-hmm. course, when you rent the movie, you don't get the commentary, you don't get the special features, and you don't get to own it. Um, so you know, paying that dollar or two more for a digital code from someone who you know bought a physical copy and is never going to use the digital code uh it seems like a bargain um but redbox isn't even selling it for cheap they're selling like their digital codes for not i mean it's not a bargain yeah (laughs) Um, it's like i think that's why maybe because they're making more money out of it than those digital digital codes are worth yeah that could be part of it it says the um the variety wrote this article and they they list uh cars 3 being on the digital code for cars 3 being like 14.99 guardians volume 2 is 7.99 uh rogue one a star wars story is 4.99 so yeah i feel like you could probably find those movies cheaper elsewhere so maybe that that's a part of it i I Um, feel like if i went on itunes cars 3 is probably like 15 bucks like that doesn't seem like a deal at all maybe it is 20 bucks i don't know that's that's weird yeah, the whole story just is like a strange thing. Like, huh? What, why do these people think this is okay? I'm not not quite sure about this one. You know, th- th- this wasn't on our docket of things to talk about, but yesterday HT wrote this article uh, because Redbox had announced uh, the most rented movies on their service, and it's this list of uh, you know, it's, it's very surprising but not so surprising <laughs> list of movies. <laughs> HT, talk, tell us a little bit about this list. Yeah, I would say that I think Redbox is a pretty good litmus test of what um, the public in America likes to watch. And they don't have perhaps the greatest taste. So they um, Redbox released the list of top 15 rented movies um, at their kiosks in honor of their 15th anniversary. So they include uh, not one, but two Adam Sandler's movies and um, several several mid-tier comedies that you wouldn't really expect to be quite that popular, but are apparently very popular in Redbox. So I'll just list out all 15. Number one is The Hunger Games. Two is 21 Jump Street. Three is Identity Thief. Four is The Avengers. Five is We're the Millers. Six is The Heat. Seven is Flight. Eight is Grown Ups. Nine is Just Go With It. Ten is The Wolf of Wall Street. Eleven is Captain Phillips. Twelve is The Hunger Games Catching Fire. Thirteen is World War Z. 14 is Divergent, and 15 is White House Down. So a lot of these are sort of unsurprising considering they're uh, huge global blockbusters, but a few of them are a little bit odd, like Identity Thief is number three, and uh, 
<laughs> there's just like yeah two adam sandler movies but i guess you know it's well, it's, it's like you said in the slack show. it, it show, shows how basic america is america is really basic <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's funny because there's a cross-section here of like you can tell like which ones probably are rented for the kids and then mm-hmm. there's like the ones that are for the like the dads like the the white house downs and the uh you know the, those kind of movies uh, yeah. i don't know it's just uh i don't know it's a weird list uh, I, I don't know anybody that still uses Redbox nowadays, but uh, do, do you guys? Do, do you know anybody out there that actually still uses Redbox? My parents do um, because there's just a bunch of kiosks like right around where they live. And I think they're they just like sort of um, wait to to, you know, because Netflix doesn't really have a ton of great new releases. And I guess Red, Redbox probably has a better selection of uh, recently released movies. So I think if my parents are looking to, I think when I went back to visit them recently, we watched the big, the, the big sick, um, through Redbox. Oh. So yeah, that was like one of the, instead of, you know, renting it through iTunes or whatever. Um, that's just how we, we got it. A, a couple years back before iTunes rentals became, uh, affordable. One of my friends, uh, used to rent movies at Redbox and, uh, I'm not sure if they still do this, but you can kind of uh, go on their app or their website and reserve a movie, like if they have it in their thing, to go pick it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was once in line to rent movies at a movie, a specific movie at Redbox, and the person in front of him in line, because there was a line back then, who knows why, but uh, the person in front of him in line was talking to his girlfriend about the movie they were going to rent, and there was only one in the thing. So he, in line behind them, went online, reserved it, so that when they got up there, they couldn't get oh, it. Wow. So could. Wow. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about that? Is, is, is that wrong, or is that just smart? Oh, man. That's a, <laughs> a, that's a tough one, yeah. Um, but you got to do what you got to do, I guess. It's yeah. a cutthroat world out there. Yeah, especially at the Redbox line. At the Redbox uh, line. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Amazon. Uh, one of the things I've love that they've been doing is putting their television pilots online as you know uh all the tv networks uh each year um give a budget and they produce these pilots for tv shows which is basically their first episode and based on how well those pilots uh are put together they'll sometimes uh show them to uh test audiences the executives and they'll decide which ones get picked up to go to series and in generally there's a lot of shows that never make it to the air that they have produced a pilot for um amazon uh was interesting because when they started getting into tv shows they made all their pilots available to the amazon prime customers to vote to help decide which ones actually got picked up and put on the air um recently that they've actually just been giving straight to series orders for shows like goliath Carnival Row, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, and Homecoming, and Deadline is reporting that uh, they're planning on uh, they're having a discussion of not putting pilots up on Prime Video at all, and uh, I don't know, that's kind of disappointing to me, because there's so many fun pilots out there, I know that like, you know, a lot of them don't go to series, I've often wondered why, why can't there be like a TV station that just shows TV pilots, because there, there's some weird, wacky, you know, if you go to like Comic-Con and you go to those booths that are selling DVDs that are maybe legally questionable, um, <laughs> uh, you can find, you know, like a Clerks television pilot starring 
you know i forget who but like it's it's like you know you can find all these weird television pilots and it's um i understand that the stars that are in them probably didn't give the rights to air these things generally but i, I would i would like to see more of these and it's disappointing that amazon is is ending this uh do, do either of you guys have any feelings on uh ha- have you voted on any of these in the past i've i've never even watched any of the ones available and i think it's probably because you know we've talked about my tv viewing habits before where i sort of like uh, basically sit on the sidelines and wait for you know uh, the community at large to uh, validate something before <laughs> i i fully dive in so um this this whole notion of uh, of checking out the pilots beforehand is sort of foreign to me anyway but uh, hd i'm curious about you i have not either i remember seeing that they were available and being vaguely interested but never actually clicking through to watch them and vote for them i liked the concept i thought it was really interesting it was very sort of crowdsource uh way to uh decide on what shows to pick up and um yeah now amazon's kind of becoming more like a typical network or streaming service in which they sort of close off that part of the uh the the sort of process to um viewers but i liked it i thought it was a really good concept but i just never actually participated in it in it um yeah I, i'm betting a lot of people have been like that and that's probably why amazon's probably seeing like the number of people voting on these pilots compared to the number of people watch and number of people watching them compared to like their user base and being like is it really worth it um but i don't know it just seems smart to me though to like use your user base uh you know some of these networks pay you know millions of dollars to have these test screenings you know you go to vegas and you get pulled into a room to watch a tv pilot and vote on like you know they're paying a lot of money to get you know these pilots on people's eyes and get them to you know give their feedback it seems like it would be easy to use your own customer base to do that but um maybe it's the fact that like um you know i remember uh seeing a bunch of these pilots and really being excited about them like um uh, Man in High Castle um, mm-hmm. is one of the Amazon shows, and I, I voted for that. And, uh, you know, by the time it actually got made and got on the air, I kind of, like, stopped caring about it. So maybe it's 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 something having to do with that. Like, you, you lose the momentum of someone getting invested in a show. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, just some food, food for thought. Uh, moving on, Wonder Woman 2 uh, is, is in development, as we know, and... Apparently, it's going to have a great love story, quote unquote. Uh, but what at, uh, at what cost, HT? What cost? That's the question, isn't it, Peter? So, Patty Jenkins, who is coming back to direct Wonder Woman 2, uh, was on Variety's Playback podcast to talk about the broad strokes of the plot, uh, which is going to be set in the 1980s at the tail end of the Cold War uh, in the U.S. So, I'm going to read her quote out here. Um, uh I'm only reading the second half. So it's like that, but because she is Wonder Woman and she's here now and she's fully developed, she's got great fun from the start and a great big superhero presence from the start and is funny and it's a great love story again and a couple new unbelievable characters who I'm so excited about who are very different than they were in the last movie. So this was kind of talking about what she was planning for uh, Wonder Woman and uh, how she would try to bring back the weight and profundity of the first uh, original film. So the thing that we kind of stuck out here was uh, the great love story because um, it's implied that, you know, Diana hasn't really gotten over Steve Trevor in the hundred years since, you know, he, spoiler alert, sacrificed his life for at the end of um, Wonder Woman. So in you even see her sort of uh, 
drawn back from the world when we first see her in Batman v Superman. And again, in Justice League, when Bruce uh, prods her about it, she reacts very violently. So we assume that Steve Trevor was kind of the only love of her life. But now there's this uh, quote from Patty Jenkins saying that there might be another great love story, uh, which I feel like personally would undercut the sort of the sacrifice and the arc that we had uh, and the great relationship we had between Steve Trevor and Diana. And that was one of the pivotal parts of the first movie because, you know, it was a romance, but it never took away from Diana's character. In fact, it kind of bled out into this whole um, how she, how like romantic love for her kind of became sort of this love for humanity. And I thought that was a really great uh, extension of that. So it's a little bit, it's kind of off-putting, but I will say after this story was released, Patty Jenkins tweeted out about sort of the um, the new cycle that the story was going through. Uh, she said, quite a few people, including this headline, seem to be completely misunderstanding or making some false assumptions based on one of the many vague quotes I made about something I can't say anything about. Just wait, winky face. <laughs> this wasn't in, re- in uh, response to our story, but one from Collider. So we might again be taking things out of context it might not actually be a great love story between diana and a new character uh it might be between two supporting characters or maybe steve trevor could be coming back because we do know we do know that chris pine is a uh, rumored to return for wonder woman 2 you know they they did not show him actually uh they didn't show that character's fate they kind of Showed it from a distance. Uh, I'm trying to keep this as spoiler free as possible. Uh, and I remember after seeing the movie, I went up to Jeff Johns and I asked him about that. And I was like, so is that leaving it open for, you know, possible like what we thought happened didn't happen? And he was like, no, what you, what you thought happened happened. So uh, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, I don't see how you could bring him back other than flashbacks. Well, right. Well, it's possible that, you know, Diana and Wonder Woman is based very heavily in Greek mythology. Uh, we could see the underworld, perhaps. Uh, uh, we could see her trying to rescue Steve Trevor from the underworld. I don't know. That's my that's my thoughts. I don't know. My, my thoughts on this is um, I know James Cameron got a lot of flack of his comments about Wonder Woman. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying I, I don't agree with him, but... Uh, and I know we don't know anything about what what Patty Jenkins is saying here, so it's making a lot of assumptions. But what worries me is that I kind of like that Wonder Woman is kind kind of as a progressive uh, feminist like thing. And I I kind of wish there wasn't a love story. I, I kind of feel like it doesn't need a love story, even if it's not. Her. Do you know what I mean like? Yeah, uh, and I, I feel like you. James Cameron was was kind of lamenting uh, the character as being. Uh, well, I don't want to go into James Cameron's comments. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I think he was. He was. I think what the bottom line of what he was trying to get to was it's trying going. It's going into too cliche of what uh, a a a str- you know quote unquote strong female character is has been in movies, and I I, mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, I don't know. I just feel like a love story isn't necessary. I, I think it'll definitely be a tired sort of cliche if they bring it back for Wonder Woman 2. But then again, we we don't know if it will be Diana's love story or not. Um, or if it'll be, it'll be marking the return of Steve Trevor. So who knows? 
we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Like whenever mm-hmm. fans get upset over something like this, I always think back to I remember when the Star Wars the Force Awakens uh, script reading, they, they released that photo and there was only like one female, you know, other than Princess Leia on that on those couches. And there was such an uproar of like, oh, they don't have any female characters and whatever. And no one even knew at the time that, you know, Ray was going to be the main character of the film and how powerful that movie was going to be to yeah. females. So I, I always get um, weary of <laughs> getting uh, 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 to, of the uproar before actually you know, having the information because, you know, yeah, you know what they that's say about when you assume. Have a, yeah, that's kind of why I always want to have like a caveat to these comments saying like this also could mean this other thing. So yeah, we never know until it actually comes out. For sure, uh, and a lot of people have, get, have been you know very critical of Star Wars: The Force Awakens, uh, it being kind of a rehash of A New Hope, and a lot of fans seem to think that uh, Star Wars: The Last Jedi might be a rehash of The Empire Strikes Back. Ryan Johnson was asked about this and the similarities and differences. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, a uh, French outlet called Numerama uh, spoke with Johnson recently and asked if he sort of intentionally stayed close to the storyline of Empire Strikes Back or if he like actively distanced himself from it. And he, uh, Ryan Johnson, who's the writer-director of the upcoming Last Jedi, said, I will be curious after you've seen the movie if you find that it looks too much like the Empire Strikes Back. I don't think it does, but I'm sure the audience will have their own opinions when they see it. Uh, For me, my attitude is always I need to tell the story as honestly as I can. I think it would be a mistake to try to copy the Empire Strikes Back, but it would be just as much of a a mistake to make creative decisions based on saying we're going to be nothing like the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, These two approaches lead to forced versions which have the same weaknesses. For me, I try just to take a starting point of what I knew about these characters and say, where do I want them to go? Um, And then essentially he, he says... Look, we're starting this movie with our protagonist going off to a desert island to meet a Jedi master, just like Luke and Yoda. Our characters are split up. Some are back with the resistance. Some are off. And then you have a kind of training dynamic seemingly set up. There are big structural things that are going to be very similar to The Empire Strikes Back. But I don't think after watching the movie, many people will have the feeling of a copy of The Empire Strikes Back. So... That's the gist of his comments there. Um, We've been hearing for a long time that this movie is uh, not what we're expecting. It's it's a very different kind of movie. And I really feel like Johnson, with as much as we know about how he's been able to control the marketing of this movie, we, we talked on the podcast a few weeks ago about how he sat down with Disney and said, this is, you know, this part of the movie is completely off the table. You cannot show any of this in the trailers. Um, I feel like he's probably had a hand in the marketing here to some degree and and is almost trolling the fans to, you know, to make the movie sort of feel like The Empire Strikes Back so he can then, you know, pull the rug out from under us when we think we know exactly what we're going to expect with this film. So that's my theory. Um, and, you know, the movie comes out in like two weeks, so we don't have to wait too much longer to see if that pans out. Yeah, I, I think my concerns here is watching the marketing um, you know, obviously the heroes are split as they are in Empire Strikes Back and uh, the trailers are all very dramatic and uh, there doesn't seem to be as much of a sense of fun. Not that there was in in those original trailers for Force Awakens, but, uh, you know, I uh, Empire Strikes Back is one of my favorites of that franchise. I mean, is my favorite of that franchise, I think. And uh, I don't know. I'm not sure why I should be worried about it being so serious, but I guess that's my concern and probably concern of 
many others out there. Um, but let's move on from Star Wars to another uh, galaxy, another universe, and that is Masters of the Universe. Uh, you know, th- this has been in the works for quite some time. They've been trying to turn He-Man into another live-action film. Uh, Masters of the Universe reboot has found a new director in Man of Steel writer, David S. Goyer. HD, what do we know? So David S. Goyer is currently in talks with Sony to direct Mas- Masters of the Universe. Uh, this announcement comes eight months after it was announced that McGee, who was initially attached to the Masters of the Universe reboot since 2016, uh, was stepping down from the project. Um, and back then, back by, in April... By, by the way, this is kind of funny because McGee was originally supposed to direct the, the Superman movie that ended up becoming Man of Steel. And David <laughs> Goyer wrote that. So, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I wonder what that says about their relationship. Um, but uh, back in April, Goyer was also announced as the writer for Masters of the Universe. So maybe he played some sort of a political cunning thing with with McGee. Um, but uh, he has now made the leap to the director's chair. Uh, it's currently in talk, so he's not confirmed yet. But he's all but confirmed. Uh, so this is a Next step for Masters of the Universe, which still does not have a star yet. Uh, Kellen Lutz was originally attached to play He-Man when McGee was originally attached. But Kellen Lutz has not been heard of since the Twilight series has ended. So it will probably be a new rising star who will play the the fantasy warrior. Uh, So this will be, I'm not sure whether it will be a reboot that will be sort of more more self-serious take on the sort of camp classic that we had uh, or whether it will be uh, another sort of uh, homage to the campiness of the 80s animated series and the Dolph Lundgren feature film. So that's all we know about it for now. There's no star, no release date attached yet. Uh, Although it's, I think, planned for 2019. Actually, no, wait, don't say that because I, that was from an old story. So (laughs) no planned date yet. Yeah. Um, I, I remember seeing the Masters Universe. I, I was a big He-Man fan as a little kid. I had, you know, all the like little figures and stuff. And I, I went to see Masters Universe in theaters. And uh, I'm not, have either of you seen that movie? I've never seen it. The only thing I know about He-Man is the meme. The meme, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Ben? <laughs> yeah, I've seen the the Dolph Lundgren version. It's uh, it's pretty awful. It, <laughs> and it, it's nothing like what the cartoons were like. Yeah, exactly. It, it was like they saw Star Wars. Star, Star Wars was big in the 80s, and they were like, let's do something like Star Wars. And Skeletor is kind of like this Darth Vader-like figure. And I think uh, the, the the only thing I can really remember about the movie is that like, so, a lot of it takes place on Earth. Like Skeletor yes. comes to Earth, it's really weird. It's kind of like this fish out of water story kind of thing, and yeah, uh, yeah it's almost like Thor a little bit. Well, a little bit. Uh, it's it, like it's really low budget. It's part of the Canon Films uh, filmography. So if you guys know anything about you know Golan and Globus and those guys and like all the crazy movies they made in the 1980s, uh, it wouldn't. It's not going to surprise you when you pop in Masters of the Universe that that's what the movie ends up looking like because it's it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and there's a documentary on the Canon Films. Have you have you seen that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's great. This is Canon yeah. or something like that. Um, and uh, I remember being uh, having nightmares as a kid about Skeletor uh, from that movie, not the <laughs> not the animated series or the the toy line. But I don't know. I, I, like, I guess Masters Universe is kind of like if they kept it to what it is, it's it's uh, you know a fantasy tale like Lord of the Rings, but with uh, 
technology and magic. I, I guess it's what Warcraft was trying to go for. So I'm wondering if that has the potential to be anything. David S. Goyer has been involved in some good stuff in the past. Ben, do you think this has any chances of being good? I mean, I, I feel like I'm not I'm not the intended audience for this movie, so I, I don't really know. It's hard for me to say. I didn't really grow up watching the cartoon. I just sort of like passively caught it here and there, you know, a couple episodes when it was on TV. Um, and I've only and, and seen it sh- that. It should be mentioned oh. that that cartoon was basically invented because of the toy line. Like yeah, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't like the toys came after the toy line. The toy line came first and then they created a cartoon out of it. Yeah, so I don't know. It, it's hard to um it's hard to say. I mean, I guess there's probably a good idea lying in there somewhere. It's just a matter of like you know, this movie has been in the works for years and years and years. So it's going to be a matter of uh, the right filmmakers having to sort of <laughs> like carve a, a brilliant statue out of a, a box, you know, like a, a huge block of marble, basically. That does it for the news. Let's move on to the mailbag. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, The Phantom Thread, uh, is coming out in theaters this month um, and it's probably going to be the talk of award season. Uh, in in today's mailbag, we're going to be answering the question, what is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Um, I will start this off uh, with one of my favorite movies of all time. It's probably in my top three or four, and that movie is Magnolia. Um, it just uh, It's a movie I didn't get to see when it was originally in theaters. I caught it when it came out on DVD. It's an epic uh, I mean, it's like three hours long. It's an it, it's some of my favorite films are those ensemble movies where the the, the storylines kind of intertwine with each other but are kind of separate and come together at different moments and uh, it, it's it's at the uh, the height of Paul Thomas Anderson being stylistic and being um, I, I think if you uh, if you look at uh, you know, Wes Anderson's uh, Royal Tenenbaums as being his most kind of like stylistic but uh, real. Like this is this is to that uh, with with, with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, another Anderson, um, and uh, I don't know. All the performances are amazing. The soundtrack by Amy Mann and um, I love John Bryan uh, and uh, his work in Magnolia is 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 great. Uh, I love the, there's so many, like, I know we're in a point where with digital cameras, we're seeing these long takes on every TV show. I mean, Mr. Robot just aired with a whole episode that was seemingly presented in one single long take. Uh, but Magnolia, you know, shot on film has some amazing, uh, long tracking shots. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it, uh, it's a very emotional movie. I love Paul. Uh, I love uh, Tom Cruise. I think it's Tom Cruise's best performance in my mind is him playing Frank T.J. Mackey. Uh, the uh, um, what do you call that? A, like uh, a public gu- speaking. Yeah. Guru. yeah. Um, it, it's a great role. It's a great film. I know. I understand why some people might not like this film, uh, but it's definitely my favorite. Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, ben, what is yours? Um. Man, it's a tough one for me. I think uh, The Master is probably my favorite of his. Um, this movie came out in 2012. I think uh, still it's probably the two best performances from 
Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think I think they both did like career peak work in that movie. Um, it's a, a quieter movie than some of Anderson's other films. It's not quite as uh, as manic and and crazy, but just watching you sort of get sucked into the characters in this movie in in a really compelling way. Um, Joaquin Phoenix just like scrunches and and bends and twists his way through this really uh, immaculate performance. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is just like laser sharp, confident all the way through. It's basically like a uh, a veiled critique of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. Um, but it's it's way more than just that. That's not really what the movie is about. It, it's it's really like gets into these themes of loyalty and trust and deception and and power, especially power um, and belief. And there are some religious uh, you know commentaries in there as well. But I think it, it's much more about these characters and sort of um, this this struggle between these two guys and like how how they have to. Um, to contend with each other in this crazy world. So, uh, man, yeah, I, I really, um, I saw the movie when it first came out and have, you know, it's one of those that just sort of like sits with you and you keep thinking about it for years and years afterwards. I was so excited to that film. You know, I was so kind of obsessed with following the Scientology and reading about Scientology. And, you know, obviously that film has a bassist in that. And I feel like I was hoping it had more to do with that and less, but it's more of a character piece. And I think uh, I was a little disappointed by that. Um, HT, you, you didn't like the movie either. Yeah, it kind of it kind of rang cold to me. I I will say that the scene between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, the interrogation scene, is one of my favorite scenes of all time. But the rest of the movie felt so I don't know disjointed and kind of. This is a weird criticism to lobby against the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Kind of pretentious. I felt like it, it <laughs> thought it was saying all these lofty ideas, but it didn't really have any sort of uh, cohesion to it. So for me, I, it didn't quite work for me. Um, One of my biggest regrets is I moved to Los Angeles shortly after Paul Thomas Anderson at the Largo presented a kind of play that he directed that had like kind of like scenes in his wife, Maya Rudolph. Is, it, is he married? I think Probably. so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, was in it. And I think they did that scene that uh, the interrogation scene in there with John Bryan on the piano performing the, the score live. Like, and this was like years before the master was made. And I, I still regret not being there to this day. <laughs> um, and I also missed the lost concert, but I was able to, uh, to fix that years later when they had another one. <laughs> so, um, which you were actually at the original lost concert. Yeah. I was yeah. not at, that's where you met your wife. So, it is. It was yeah. great. Um, okay. Aww. So, uh, HT, what, what is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? So I'm going to be um, predictable and go with There Will Be Blood, uh, which I believe is his greatest movie and one of the great movies of American cinema. It's just this American classic. It tells this epic story about um, this sort of twisted, deluded search for the American dream. And it has one of Daniel Day-Lewis's best performances, as well as Paul Dano as the twin uh, brothers. And I remember when I watched it, I was uh, really embroiled in the sort of Oscar race between There Will Be, there will be Blood and No Country for Old Men. And they're both extremely different, as well as somewhat similar in terms of like the themes that they tackle with like Americana and like that uh, perversion of Americana. But there will be a lot just touched me a lot more. I think that it 
even though it's it's quite dense and it's quite long, it just tackles all these themes of um, like the great American classics and literature and movies have always tackled, which is just like one man's dream and how it may, it may have been pure at the beginning kind of becomes corrupted and twisted because of just uh, how he aims to get it. And um, it's, it's a great film. It's a wonderfully shot film and definitely I think PT Anderson's best. Yeah. I, I, I love Daniel day Lewis's performance in that movie. I love the score by Johnny Greenwood is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's definitely the kind of him taking more steps into like a minimalistic kind of approach to storytelling. And I've come to kind of more of a fan of the stylistic, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson of olden days. And that's why my second favorite movie from Paul Thomas Anderson is boogie nights. Uh, because you know, that, uh, you know, it, it, it has like those tracking shots that we see in Magnolia it has an amazing score has, you know, it's another one of those ensemble films. I love that. It's a film about the, uh, it's a film about the porn business, but it's a movie about filmmaking and it's, um, you shouldn't care about these people, but you care because they care so much about what they're doing. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a fun movie. It's a sad movie. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a long movie, like all Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Uh, but it's it's definitely one I've, I've rewatched over and over again, and I, I, I love. Um, ben, what is your – what's next on your list? Uh, my next one is There Will Be Blood for many of the same reasons that HT was just talking about. She she uh, wrapped it up pretty beautifully there. I think uh, for it's funny that she brought up the idea of the Oscar race because the movie came out 10 years ago and I also was sort of um, really locked into whether or not, you know, comparing this movie to um, to No Country for Old Men. And at the time, I remember thinking that No Country for Old Men uh, winning the Oscar was like the correct uh, choice. And now, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and years later, I think they probably made a mistake there. I think um, the Oscars make a mistake. No. (laughs) Well, I think (laughs) I think there will be blood at the time. I was um, I I, I don't know. I think it's so big and so vast a movie that I was uh, unable to see um, all of the brilliance in it the first time around. I remember actually Peter reading Slash Film 10 years ago, way before I came on as a writer. Oh, no, don't bring and, this up. <laughs> and there was a review that was like 33,000 words or something insane. And yeah. I remember reading this thing and just being like, wow, this is, uh, this is a hell of a piece of writing here. So, um, I don't even know if the arc, if that, if that review is still archived, but I would in- encourage anybody who, uh, really likes There Will Be Blood to, uh, seek that out because it's a <laughs> it is a hell of a piece of writing but um yeah man I, I there will be blood like Daniel day Lewis you can't say enough about his performance in that movie um he he is completely morally bankrupt in every way but but it's so uh compelling and fascinating to to watch his journey um I also it should be mentioned that I have not seen uh hard eight or um punch Ruck love so those movies didn't make my list because I haven't seen them yet, not because I don't like them. Um, so I don't know. I, I just find it hard to believe that I would like either of those more than There Will Be Blood. So You won't, but you, you need to see Heart 8, which is a uh, 
you know, it's a movie. You can read about it. It, it, it. You know, the edit, the final release of that film is not necessarily the film that he wanted to make, which was called Sydney. And you can read about that. And there's a commentary on that. That's that's great. Uh, but I highly recommend it. HT, what is your second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Yeah, I have to confess, too, that I haven't seen a huge the majority of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. I have not seen Magnolia. I've not <sighs> seen Heart Eight. I've not seen Punch Truck Love. But I have watched Boogie Nights. I didn't really care for Inherent Vice. But Boogie Nights will be my second film. Uh, it was a film that surprised me because I went in it, went into it not really knowing what it was about. And I kind of assumed it would be a 70s set comedy, considering the title. <laughs> and uh, it was not that. It was, um, like you said, Peter, a really great ensemble film. I remember really liking uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance uh, again, as always. And uh, just... The way that it tells this uh, another sort of all-American story, which Paul Thomas Anderson seems to really love, I liked it a lot. And just the um, the spanning across generations and uh, how the porn industry is not is actually kind of like a found family sort of safe haven for these people, despite all the uh, the stereotypes and the um, that come with the porn industry and stuff. So I I like that a lot. I like that found family concept that we see a lot in Boogie Nights and uh, it's actually somewhat of a heartwarming film despite uh, the hard and uh, unsettling topics that it goes into it like had John C. Riley in a comedy role uh, a serious in comedy role long before that became kind of a thing mm-hmm. um, it's I don't know I, I love Boogie Nights I wanted to give one last shout or one additional shout out it's not a movie but it's something that I think a lot of people that like Paul Thomas Anderson's work probably have not seen. And it is a music video that was made for the movie Pleasantville, not a movie that Paul Thomas Anderson made, but he was dating at the time Fiona Apple and he made, he directed this music video starring Fiona Apple. Uh, of course is Paul Thomas Anderson. So it takes place all in one uh, single shot, I, th- I believe. And uh, it's for the Beatles song across the universe, which has, it's a fantastic cover by Fiona Apple. Um, highly recommend it. Um, but I'm sure people are probably mad at us that we did not include uh, uh, some of those other films that you got, you guys mentioned not seeing, Heart 8 and... Uh, uh, oh, my God. What's the one? Punch Drunk Love. Punch Love. Love. Yeah. yeah, I know a lot of people love Punch Drunk Love. Um, <laughs> for me, it was a little too minimalistic and too funny. I wanted... I, I like the more serious Paul Thomas Anderson. I like it. He's when he's at his best, in my mind, just like Quentin Tarantino when he's in... Lot, when he's in Southern California in like the 70s, 80s, do you know what I mean? Like that, that that's uh, like th- that whole like the last uh, 30, 40 years era of Los Angeles. I think I, I really dig the, his stuff from there. Um, anyways, if you have a question to submit to the mailbag, send it to Peter at slash com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention them on the air. Uh, HT, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui, and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast, on iTunes. Ben, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And you can find me on Twitter at SlashFilm. You can find all the articles we mentioned today and more on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, You know, please give us a rating. Give us a review on iTunes. Spread the word on social media. That helps us out quite a bit. And we'll see you on Monday.